Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger, and, and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray as we stand. Uh, your word, Father God, is living light upon our darkened eyes. It guards us through temptations. It makes us wise. Uh, your word is like food for us. It brings freedom to us and riches to our needy souls. Come speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please sit. And uh, please, if you would find again uh, that passage from Mark's Gospel in your Bibles, page 1004. And if you like that sort of thing, you might find a corner of one of the various bits of paper you were given on the way in to take some notes. Uh, It's a common complaint uh, that political elections are too stage-managed. We live in this constant 24-hour media culture uh, that just loves sound bites. And very rarely do things get discussed at length or in their proper context. It's maybe understandable then that lots of politicians just end up uh, giving tight-lipped, uh, on-message, media-savvy sound bites, since that what, that's what gets repeated round and round again. 
But it kind of feels hard, doesn't it, to get under the skin, not, not just of policies and decisions, but of the people, of the leaders. You know, who are they? How do they tick? What do they really believe? And given all that, what would it actually be like to follow them? It's kind of hard to know. Maybe it's just me, uh, and by the reaction at 9.15, I think it is just me, but I've, I've often wondered what it would be like to have a bunch of sort of senior political leaders around for dinner. Just me again. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, more eggs, Mr. Cameron, Mr. Miliband, stop stealing Mr. Clegg's potatoes. You'd get to sit opposite them, wouldn't you? Uh, to see them in their uh, unguarded moments, to get a flavour of the real them, see their real convictions uh, in action. That is what we get to do uh, here in this section of Mark's Gospel because, you see, there's, there's a conflict emerging. Uh, it's not over uh, political leadership, but it's over, as it were, spiritual leadership here in Israel. And on the one side, uh, Jesus has been turning heads and drawing crowds, uh, especially amongst what you might call the most spiritually disengaged, uh, the sick, the disturbed, the sinful. But on the other side are his opponents, the Pharisees, increasingly troubled uh, at Jesus' uh, rhetorical power and his insights and his popularity. And they don't need uh, Ipsos Mori in the field to see the crowds that just follow Jesus everywhere. And above all, they're disturbed as well by what you might call his manifesto. Jesus is saying God's kingdom is near and it is open to the most spiritually sick. Which means as well that they thoroughly disapprove of the, co- of the company he keeps on the campaign trail. Do you remember Levi and his tax collector friends? You remember we left Jesus last week feasting at Levi's place, which didn't go down too well. And opposition from these Pharisees is as well growing and growing. It's escalating all through uh, these passages. Do you remember a few weeks ago we were in Mark chapter 2 at the beginning where Jesus healed the paralytic and told him his sins were forgiven? Do you remember how the opposition began? It was with a quiet thought in their minds. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And as we reach the end of this section, we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the end of our passage today, you'll see that things have escalated so much that the Pharisees, the same Pharisees, go off and plot how they'll kill him. And the material you have before you today uh, records the, the clashes and the conflicts between Jesus and these religious leaders. These are not, as it were, stage-managed events. This is real-time, on-the-ground, real conflict, up close and personal. This is your politicians around the dinner table stuff. And you can be sure that Mark is inviting us to make a comparison. You know, which kind of a leader do you want? Who are you going to follow? But before we jump into all of that, notice that in the middle of all of this, Jesus throws in two little parables. And they are, it seems to me, the key to the whole section. I say that with slight trepidation because I I think these are probably two of the most abused verses in the New Testament. I've heard these verses used to justify all kinds of things, most of which seems to me have not a lot to do with Mark chapter 2. Anyway, read with me from verse 21. Hopefully we'll do a bit better. 
Uh, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, my sewing knowledge uh, is in negative equity, uh, but I'm told that what Jesus says here is quite true. If you want to fix a little tear in a garment that's got damaged, the last thing to do is to sew on a new piece of unshrunk cloth. It just won't work. They're not compatible. It will pull and tear away. In fact, you'll end up with, with a worse mess than you started with. They're, not, they're just not compatible. Same with wine. I'm told that the, the old wineskins, which had been used to, to store wine in an everyday kind of way, over time they became uh, crusty and uh, calcified and stiff and inflexible. And when you put those together with new wine, which is still sort of fizzing and bubbling with new life uh, as it continues to ferment, it's just a disaster. Again, this, these two things are just, they're incompatible. It won't work. They're quite violent parables, aren't they? They both end with, with tearing or splitting or bursting. Now, it might be that sewing or, or wine are still a bit foreign to you, so if I'm allowed to do this, let me add my own parable to try and help us understand what Jesus is saying. I've got a friend, let's call him Ben, because that's his real name. <laughs> he used to work for Procter & Gamble. Now, Ben is a kind of uh, outdoorsy, thrill-seeking mountaineering kind of a guy so all of us thought it was pretty funny but when he arrived at P&G one of the first jobs he was given was to manage the global supply chain for Max Factor makeup turns out that some makeup uh, is is imperishable in other words you can you can store it wherever you like for a long time and it's fine but turns out some Max Factor makeup is very much perishable and you've got to be very careful about where you leave it and where you store it It's also true that managing a global supply chain for anything is a pretty tricky business. One slip on a spreadsheet could end in disaster. Unfortunately for Ben, in his first few weeks of employment, uh, it did lead to disaster. And one slip on a spreadsheet meant that a perishable shipment of Max Factor makeup sat on a cargo plane uh, on a runway uh, in New York in a heat wave. Uh, for a number of hours, uh, which resulted in the whole shipment melting and all the max factor was lost. It was no longer the makeup of makeup artists. At a cost of about half a million quid, it shows you how much P&G have to burn uh, when you find out that Ben didn't lose his job uh, either. (laughs) New patches are incompatible with old garments, The same is true for new wine and old wineskins, and if you like, Max Factor makeup and 100-degree runways don't go well together. These things are incompatible. And in this passage, we are very clearly presented with two parties. That is, Jesus and his followers versus the religious Pharisees. And it's not hard to see what the point of Jesus' parables is. Jesus and his message are fundamentally incompatible with the religion of the Pharisees. The the life-filled, hope-filled vitality of the new wine, if you like, of Jesus' message is just incompatible with the dried-out and crusty and calcified religion of the Pharisees. 
who've become encrusted around their own rules and structures and frameworks. If I can stretch the political analogy one more time, and it is getting a bit stretched now, these are not two parties who are about to end up in coalition. You know, it's just not going to happen. It won't hold, it won't work. They're incompatible. And it will just end up with, as it were, cloths tearing and skins bursting. It will end in violent destruction. And again, that's where we end, isn't it? Chapter 3, verse 6. Off they go to plot his death. So let's see it all happen. Let's get into the -the on-the-ground accounts. If you're taking notes, you can write this down if you like. First of all, following Jesus means feasting, not fasting. Following Jesus means feasting, not fasting. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now God's law only requires one fast per year, one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. But in this current religious climate, thanks probably to the influence of the Pharisees, fasting has been, if you like, ramped up to a twice a week expectation especially for anyone who's sort of claiming to be a religious leader or expressing their piety. Really, twice-a-week fasting is what you've got to go for. One commentator puts it like this. If Jesus and his disciples want to be taken seriously, they had better pay attention to the fasting protocol. But Jesus deliberately, I guess, doesn't. Instead, he responds, verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot. And that's the kind of thing I probably get in trouble for saying, but I'm sometimes a bit grumpy about weddings. Maybe it's being a church musician, you do get to go to a few. But I'm only ever really grumpy before. Once you get there, they're brilliant. And no matter how many times you've seen it, it always is brilliant and moving and wonderful to see a couple get married. If I've been to your wedding recently, I promise I wasn't grumpy about it. Uh, but after our weddings, you know, we have the, uh, a bit of a party, a few short speeches, or we wish they were short, anyway, and then perhaps an embarrassing disco, and off the couple go on honeymoon. But a Jewish wedding is much better than that. You should have a Jewish wedding uh, if you want to, or maybe you shouldn't, I don't know. Anyway, but it's a, it's a week, a whole week of partying and feasting. And uh, I found out this week that the guests would have been officially freed up from any religious observance that might hinder a proper good week-long stonker of a party how incongruous says Jesus to come to that kind of a party and say I won't have any food thanks I'm fasting how bizarre how offensive how stupid see in this climate fasting has become synonymous with mourning and sadness and grief and sorrow Jesus says, others might want to lead you into misery and sorrow. But Jesus says, his arrival is like a wedding. Because Jesus says, he is like a bridegroom. And if you know the Bible at all, that might make you stop in your tracks. Because who in the Old Testament is the lover and the husband of God's people? It's God himself, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm God. 
And as the bridegroom, he's come to win, as it were, a bride, that is, a people for himself. He's been calling people. That's what he's been doing in these early chapters, isn't it? Calling people, the most unlikely of people, very often, into relationship, like a marriage, with God. Sins are being forgiven. Wasted, broken lives are being restored. Others might want to lead you into misery and fasting, says Jesus, but now I'm here. Look what's happening. It's a time for joy. See, the Christian faith um, at its heart is not a somber religious affair. It is a faith of joy because of what Jesus has done for us. You see the kind of kingdom he is the king of, a kingdom with what, where evil is driven out, uh, where death and sickness are put to an end. He has called you and I, the most unlikely, the most spiritually sick of people to be part of a kingdom like that because of nothing we've done but everything he's done for us in his kindness. Isn't that good? Isn't that joyful? The story gets told of a little girl who sat in church uh, constantly smiling at the people in the pew behind. And after a long time, it just got too much for her mother who smacked her and said, stop it, we're in church I mean, presumably, sort of misery was deemed more appropriate somehow. There does seem to be this fallacy sometimes in Christian circles that being miserable is somehow synonymous with Christian maturity. But it isn't. If you grasp what Jesus is doing, there is joy in it. Add to all that stuff about misery that that some people say in this New Testament period, fasting has somehow become uh, synonymous with the idea of, of hastening the arrival of the Messiah. Well, that's really incongruous as well, says Jesus, because look, I'm here. The Christian life is ultimately characterized more by feasting than fasting, much more by joy than misery. Now, don't you think the paralytic knew that? Sins forgiven, legs restored. What about the leper? What about Levi? So, says Mark, which leader do you want? Do you want joyful Jesus? Or do you want the other lot? Secondly, following Jesus means people, not procedure. Following Jesus means people, not procedure. This is verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and his disciples, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, God's law insisted that that in line with God's pattern in creation, uh, his people should keep one day a week uh, as holy or separate, not for work, but for rest. Now, for all that the Pharisees speak of, quote, unlawful behavior here, as far as I can tell, I don't think the disciples are actually breaking God's law. But like with the fasting thing, uh, those who were religiously zealous in this time had had constructed uh, around uh, the law a complex set of traditions Uh, and a Pharisee would pride himself on being able to answer the most convoluted question about exactly what 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 was and what wasn't allowed on the Sabbath because of exactly what did and didn't constitute work according to their traditions at least 
And so you might expect Jesus to respond by uh, rebuking the Pharisees for sort of loading on extra rules, which he does do in other places. But instead, here he takes a different tack. Verse 25. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Now Jesus says, I've got a precedent here. And who is his precedent? It's David, King David. I guess that's partly because the Pharisees are hardly in a position to question the Old Testament, which they claim to revere and love so much. But more than that, what is Jesus doing as he sets up a precedent? He's drawing a line between David and himself. And who was David? Well, he was the Christ. It just means God's anointed king. And David was the great uh, forerunner, the great shadow or type or picture of what the Christ, that is Jesus, would be like when he arrived. And so do you see what Jesus is doing? David is my precedent. And who's David? He's the Christ. Oh, so am I. Here I am. He appeals again to his identity. Don't you know who I am? I'm God's chosen king. But notice too that that the emphasis in the story is on David's need. He and his friends are starving. They don't have any food. In fact, not that we've got time to go into it now, but David's in great danger in this account. Jesus is concerned with people. And so too, I guess, with his disciples who are presumably in need of food. And again, not that they, as far as I can tell at least, are actually breaking the law. But if leeway is needed or given, it's given to those who are in need. In other words, the law, you might say especially this law, the law about Sabbath, law about resting, was never meant to make life difficult. It is a pretty perverse situation, isn't it, when when laws intended to help have somehow been ramped up into things which only hinder And of course, Jesus said it best of all. Some of the most brilliant, compelling words in early Mark. Verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is all about people. The Pharisees, on the other hand, seem at least to be all about themselves. See, they would rather see boxes ticked to their satisfaction even if that means the needy or the hungry are trampled on in the process. And Jesus goes on, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This most ancient of commands, grounded in creation, even this, says Jesus, is subservient to me. Jesus is saying, if you want someone to understand and to interpret the law for you, then I'm your man. I had a very frightening experience a few years ago. We, we just had our, our car serviced and MOTs. We had this little Citroen Saxo that we just loved. Uh, and I was driving out of our, our street one day and coming to a junction. And I hit the brakes and the brake pedal kept going. And nothing happened. It was terrifying. With a bit of handbrake and a bit of curb, I managed to stop before the junction. We'd taken the car to a little man down the road because he was cheaper than the Citroen garage. I won't say which little man it was. 
it turns out that uh, though he had the maker's instructions, he clearly hadn't interpreted them right, else our car would have stopped in the normal way. Uh, rest assured, our car went back to Citroen after that, uh, who had and were able to rightly interpret the maker's instructions. It went back to the maker's. And Jesus is saying, you want someone to interpret the law? Well, you need the author of the law. You need me. And you see now why these little parables are so telling. The message of Jesus in the end can have nothing to do with this kind of crusty, calcified religion. The kind that really has become quite divorced from real need and real life. You don't need to turn to it now, but ultimately Jesus will say this of the same Pharisees when we get to chapter 7. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. See, the patch will tear away. The wineskin will be split. Jesus and dead religion don't mix. And maybe you sort of feel like you, you, you sit a bit on the fringes of church or the Christian faith. And you find Jesus interesting, compelling even. But you're worried that if you become his follower, it will mean you have to adopt a slightly strange bunch of empty rituals that lack integrity or grounding in real life. The preacher Dick Lucas says it this way. Don't worry Jesus isn't very religious. What a relief. You might be worried, though, that perhaps as a Christian, that, that, that Jesus is somehow bringing a, a, a new message, a very new message, which is somehow totally out of step with the, the Old Testament. And it leads you to think, well, uh, sending Jesus must have been an unfortunate afterthought for God the Father since his first plan didn't work out so well. But you can be reassured, too, and Jesus' message does have a newness and a freshness to it, especially to these Pharisees who have so extended and expanded and built up and walled in the Old Testament law that they've long ceased to understand and to see the heart of it. And yes, this is the moment where God is revealing himself more fully than he has before in the Lord Jesus. But it also seems to me that, if you'll pardon the pun, Jesus' teaching is pretty vintage. Um, it has long been the case that God hates empty religiosity, which has just become a meaningless show. Just go and read the Old Testament prophets. So here are three questions. Firstly, are you following Jesus? I mean, the stage is set, right? What kind of a leader do you want? Do you want Jesus, the bridegroom, who's throwing a party, who's come to help and to win and to save people, even the worst of people, even people like you and me. This new vibrant wine who won't have a hint of dead religion. He is so compelling, isn't he? And you can see why men and women both now and then have been so utterly captivated by him that they've left everything to follow him. Have you done that? And if you haven't, can you really think of safer or wiser or more generous hands to entrust yourself to? Secondly, are you stuck in religion? 
And even for the Christian here today, even for someone who has had, as it were, a taste of the new wine of Jesus, are you straying back into dead religion? Perhaps it just sometimes feels easier to calculate your, as it were, spiritual performance by a bunch of rules. And maybe you have your own internal league system. Church attendance gained two points. Small group attendance, bonus points. Talked to homeless man, add two. Gossiped at work, lose three. In some ways it just feels easier, doesn't it? It's just easier to play those kind of religious games rather than asking the real big questions. Do I look inside and see my deep need for a saviour because of my sinfulness? Am I wholeheartedly following Jesus because in him I find everything I need? Thirdly, what kind of a church will we be? There's this guy called Tom Rayner, who's a church statistician of many decades' experience. He's read a number of books, quite interesting. There's one which is particularly grimly fascinating, which is called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And he basically picks over the remains of quite a number of churches that have steadily declined and then died out. There are all kinds of reasons why that happens, but here's what he says. The most pervasive and common thread of our autopsies was that the deceased churches lived for a long time with the past as hero. They held on more tightly with each progressive year. They often clung to things of the past with desperation and fear. And when any internal or external force tried to change things, they responded with anger and resolution, saying, we will die before we change. And they did. Hear me clearly. These churches were not so much hanging on to biblical truths uh, as they were fighting for the past or the good old days. He goes on, what did the deceased churches cling to? Worship styles were certainly on the list. Some stubbornly held on to buildings and rooms. Some would not accept any new pastor. But more than any one item, these dying churches focused on their own needs rather than the needs of others. It does sound an awful lot like the Pharisees, doesn't it? Look, hear me right. I am not, not saying uh, that... Uh, The church in the past was all dead religion and things now are wonderful. No, sometimes it's the reverse. But it is sad, isn't it, when, when Christians who once seemed so full of vibrant faith and joy in following Jesus have somehow become so fixed on some system or structure or way of doing things that they seem at least to have lost their vibrant joy in following Jesus. Let's return to the text as as we close. If you're still in any doubt, let's see how destructive this kind of empty religion is. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. See, it's all about people for Jesus. Some were looking for a reason to accuse him, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Stop again. Do you see how far we've come? Remember the paralytic? A few thoughts in the mind. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now he hasn't even done anything yet. And they're already trying to catch him out. Verse 3. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. You can cut the tension with a knife at this point. Then Jesus asked, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? 
to save life or to kill. Which is strange, actually, because for all that there's been a debate about whether Jesus will heal on the Sabbath or not, no one's mentioned murder, have they? Oh, but Jesus knows, you see. Jesus knows. Read on. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He says, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. They are nitpicking over the fourth commandment about the Sabbath. And in their hearts are plotting murder. That's the sixth commandment. So what kind of leader do you want? Do you want Jesus or a Pharisee? Will it be vibrant new wine or dead old religion? They are, in the end, completely incompatible. In fact, in the end, one wants to kill the other. And in the end, we will have to choose. Let's pray. We praise you, Father God, for these compelling accounts of Jesus. We're grateful to you for his uh, wisdom and kindness and compassion, uh, for the way he seems to know us and the world so very well. We thank you for the offer he makes us to be part of his joyful kingdom and we pray for your help to follow him in Jesus name Amen